Hi, this is Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. We're so excited to have so many of you with us this afternoon. Uh, we, I have with me a terrific team here with attorney Aaron Finkelstein, the assistant managing attorney of the Murthy Law Firm, and attorney Korzad Mehta uh, in the non-immigrant department. Just a quick administrative procedural reminder here. We would strongly recommend that nobody violate the law because these are copyrighted materials of the Murthy Law Firm, the entire teleconference discussion. So please respect that privacy and that requirement, and it is the law. We believe that today's topic, which is the role of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, is a very, very important topic that will help not just businesses and companies, but also individuals, whether it's your senior executives from your company, whether it's U.S. company owners itself or anybody else that has to travel abroad and re-enter the United States. Basically, any and every one of us ends up dealing with a CBP agent when you leave the country, whether you're going across to a neighboring country like Canada or Mexico or whether you're traveling to far-off lands like your home country, whether it's in India or China or the U.K. or Singapore or Australia. Basically, the Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, is the federal agency within the cabinet level of the United States Department of Homeland Security. It is considered with the mission of both keeping terrorists out of the United States as well as welcoming you to the United States, obviously a very tough and conflicting message that they have to give to each of us as we try to enter the United States. To carry out their mission, CBP is required to enforce the U.S. laws and uh, regulations dealing with immigration and dr drug enforcement and many, many other laws. And therefore, CBP plays a key role with respect to immigration and their immigration functions. Uh, for the purposes of our discussion today, we will discuss the specific immigration functions carried out by the CBP. Aaron, one of the most complex, difficult, and yet oftenly, commonly often used term is the term both inspection and admission. And they sound like very simple terms, but we have found that that's where there's a lot of complex issues. Can you briefly explain for the employer employers who are on this call today, what's the difference between inspection and admission, and why should it matter to an individual or a business person or a key employee entering the United States? Absolutely. Hello, everybody. When you consider inspection and admission, um, what you're dealing with, what you're dealing with, is essentially when a foreign national presents themselves at any port of entry, whether it's a land or an airport of entry, to come into or enter into the United States, they have to be inspected by a CBP officer, and if they're eligible after the inspection, they are permitted to be admitted. In a non admitted admitted to admit the, this foreign national into the United States, so inspection in the immigration context is really where the CBP officer, where the Custom and Border Protection officer, will examine the passport, visa, or the other document the other documents evidencing the basis or the reason for which the person wants to come into the United States, and they will check to make sure that the person's individual criminal, health, financial background of the non-citizen, all of that is basically 
primarily been vetted prior, but the documentation showed that they're in a good position. And if the inspection is good, they're then admitted. Admission is the legal term that's used for being allowed into the United States in the eyes of the government pursuant to a lawful entry upon clearance of an, ex of an inspection, acceptance of documentation, and satisfaction with the background of the non-citizen that the person is eligible to be admitted and to come in. Okay. Now, this sounds like a lot of mumbo-jumbo, hoagie-pokey, difficult concepts. And I think, you know, it can be a little confusing. And I think a really simple and common way that one sort of distinguishes between admission is when a person is admitted is when you enter on like an H-1 visa or you're admitted as a permanent resident, you're admitted as opposed to when you're paroled into the United States when you have an advanced parole or some other document. And there's a legally a huge difference between the two in terms of legal rights and benefits, et cetera. Korzat, can you explain a little bit what is parole and why, how is it different from admission? Thank you, Sheila, and I'd be happy to. Um, as opposed to admission, which, uh, as Aaron very, very clearly said, is where the government considers an individual to be inside the border or inside the four corners of the United States, Parole is a legal fiction. It's a grant of a leave or permission for an individual to be physically present in the United States, but virtually, in the eyes of law, be at the border. Um, they're not consider uh, parolees are not considered to be inside the United States. They're considered to be at the border in the eyes of the law. Okay, okay. And so now, what is the difference then between admission and parole? Well, individuals who are present in the United States pursuant to an admission, so they can be immigrants or non-immigrants, are entitled to many more rights and relief uh, and reliefs in case of removal proceedings, and they're subject to what are known as the deportation grounds of inadmissibility. So if there's an issue which, which results in an individual having to come up in front of an immigration judge and fight for their uh, right, for lack of a better word, or their, or their uh, permission to stay in the United States they would be subject to deportation grounds. And that's a, as opposed to individuals who are parolees, who, like we just said, are at the border. They're, su they are, they're treated as if they are trying to come into the United States. They're subject to a much broader uh, range of uh, removability in, in, in what's known as the inadmissibility grounds. So that cuts off uh, some certain uh, relief or, you know, um, or benefits that they could have to remain in the United States in the unlikely event or in the unfortunate event of an issue with immigration and customs Aha, enforcement. So, so just to be clear that basically you're, when you're paroled, you're not legally admitted in the U.S. You're just being paroled, being granted some kind of a temporary benefit and therefore you don't enjoy as many legal rights in general as somebody who's actually been admitted in the U.S., and therefore you could be um, kicked out more easily. You're inadmissible, not just being deported or removed from the U.S. You're actually inadmissible. Okay, I think I sort of, sort of understand, and I guess it becomes an issue is it can become more and more important uh, depending on the circumstances, especially if a person... Is, has a criminal issue or certain issues because they're completely different uh, grounds for inadmissibility versus removability. And I thought it would be a good time for me to briefly discuss in maybe a minute or two the, the difference about when a person can expect to apply for admission to, the, uh, to enter the United States. The question that a CBP officer often asks will depend largely on the basis 
upon which the individual who is obviously either a non-citizen or non-permanent resident in most cases will seek to, uh, seek to be admitted into the United States. For example, if the individual seeks admission as an H-1B non-immigrant, the CBP officer will want to ensure that there is an actual bona fide job for that person in the H-1B status, that the H-1B employer is paying the H-1B wage, that the H-1B employer is compliant with their terms and conditions. We've heard of a few examples, I'm sure you all have, where the person has been sent back from the border because the employer was either non-compliant, the employer didn't follow the terms of the wage or other obligations, or the individual employee uh, um, had, you know, fake um, education or work experience, et cetera, et cetera. And the CBP officer has the legal right to ensure the bona fides of the job offer, that the non-immigrant is coming to undertake the specific duties of a specialty occupation as outlined on the H-1 petition. So it's important for your employees to read what are the list of the job duties on the H-1 petition, both for the visa appointment interview and when they enter the United States, so that it's consistent and the work location is consistent with what was mentioned on the H-1B LCA, another very, very common problem that we find. If the individual is seeking admission as a tourist, the CBP officer will want to ensure that the individual has sufficient personal funds to support himself or herself in the United States for the duration of the trip. So if one of your parents is coming to visit on a B1, B2 for six months, you don't want them to say they have $5 in their pocket, which actually I had a close relative once say that they had $4 in their pocket. and was a miracle that the CBP officer actually allowed them in because they were told that, hey, my relative Sheila Murthy will take care of me. Um, now, you also want to be sure that the person, you know, if it's an H-1, they enjoy dual intent, but for pure non-immigrant visas like B-1 or F-1, uh, the person does not intend to work in the United States without proper authorization. They, the person intends to depart upon completion of the trip to the U.S. Uh, the person is properly doing the job. If there's any confusion or if the actual review takes a little bit longer, the CBP officer can then send the person to the next stage uh, at the secondary inspection and having a good positive attitude by your relative or by you if you are being admitted as an officer or the CEO of a company certainly helps all the time, helps in life. It's a general rule that I don't care who you are and what you are. It's always nice to be nice and it's always polite and proper to be courteous to officers, especially when they're in uniform and have a lot of rights that they can take advantage and, and use uh, against our benefit. Um, and usually the constitutional rights are less when a person is at the border because the Customs and Border Protection people have far greater authority uh, at the border to, uh, as Korzad just explained, to prevent you from entering the United States because it is another area, very important strategic area for protection of the United States borders. Aaron, does a valid H-1B visa stamp or another visa stamp in a person's passport provide the person with lawful authorization so that the CBP has to allow them to enter the U.S.? No, absolutely not. The thing about the visa is it's a good sign because it shows that the individual went to the consulate, that their documents and information were reviewed by the consulate, and that some government organization in this particular case, the Department of State, determined that they were eligible for the benefit. But once they knock on the door of the United States at the port of entry, at the airport, or at the land border that they're coming in, 
the CBP officer then has the opportunity, as we spoke about it before, to inspect the person and, so to speak, go through a re-verification process if they choose to do so. Generally, they only give you about a minute to two minutes. If everything looks good and the visa was properly issued, they'll then say, yes, we can make this determination quickly, and they can go ahead and they can admit you. However, there are cases where they look and something doesn't look 100% correct, and they absolutely have the ability to refuse somebody admission into the United States. Okay, great. Thank you, Aaron. Um, uh, you know, I know there's whole other issues about what happens when the passport expires earlier, which I think we're getting to in the petition expiration date. But um, Korzad, upon admission to the you know upon admission to the United States in a lawful non-immigrant classification, the person who's trying to enter the U.S. is usually given a new I-94 card, the non-immigrant in particular. Um, not immigrants, obviously, mm -hmm. but non-immigrants are granted the I-94 card. What is the CBP form I-94, and how, does, how is that different than the H-1B petition I-94? Well, the CBP form I-94 is the arrival departure record. Um, and uh, the portion that we're most concerned with is the departure record, which is typically... Um, stapled into a foreign national's passport after completion of the in inspection admission process. Um, this document notes the date of uh, admission into the United States, the classification, H-1B, B-1, F-1, that, they were, that they're uh, going to be um, uh, maintaining inside the United States, as well as for how long they're allowed to be in the United States. And the USCIS has a, has a CBP, I'm sorry, has a wide range of discretion uh, with respect to uh, the duration of admission. Uh, this document is vitally important, and it's vitally important because it typically is the sole evidence of a lawful admission and or lawful presence in the United States, and it also indicates the parameters, i.e. the terms and conditions under which a person can be in the United States, so you know whether they can function as a tourist or whether they can function as a worker or whether they can function as a student. Um, the difference between the CBP form I-94, the one that is given by a CBP officer uh, at the border, and the USCIS I-94 that is issued typically upon an extension or a change of employer or a, um, or a uh, change of status is, is simply that the CBP form I-94 is issued at the border and evidences a lawful admission, while the CIS form I-94 uh, it can uh, show a maintenance of status or a change of status and allows a person to be in the United States and prove their ability to be in the United States. And a States. simple way that one can find out what the difference is, usually the one given at the CBP is white in color, and the other one is usually got the security codings and the gray and the white and the pink and all of that, which is issued by the USCIS. It's usually a tear-off portion uh, stapled. Both tend to be stapled to the passport, but generally the one that's granted by CBP is stapled in the passport right as you enter the country. Um, and sometimes we find that uh, what happens is that the CBP will incorrectly put a date when they're in a hurry. Sometimes they have a stamp of the prior person, and if they forget to change it, it may have a completely wrong date. So the employee, or if it's you coming into the country, even if you're the employer who's on a H-1B status or some other status, you want to be very sure that, the, that you as employers or you as HR personnel verify the entry date and ensure that the employee, the H-1B candidate or the L-1 or whatever candidate gets the correct date matching the latest H-1B approval notice date and not the visa stamp date or somebody else's passport date or some incorrect or wrong date, which happens from time to time. 
And that ties into my question to you, Aaron. Uh, what steps should a person take if they notice that the CBP officer has issued the wrong I-94 expiration date and either they realize it right then at the airport as soon as it's issued, or maybe they don't realize it till they reach home and then they're like, oops, this is a problem. Well, you know, that's a great question. And there's actually, it brings me to a more general question of what happens if CBP just makes an error on the H on the I-94, the, the document that they've admitted you with that Corzette has talked so well about. You know, there's really three types of errors or three types of things that can go wrong. One type of thing is if they issue the wrong status. So you planned on coming in in an H and they issued it as an L or a B-1 or a Sometimes what status. they do is instead of H-1B, they write H-4 or the H-4, they've written H-1B sometimes. Correct. That doesn't mean that the spouse on H-4 can start legally working, even though it may certainly be tempting sometime when they take forever to approve petitions. Uh, no question at all. And, and that's something that I've seen happen quite a bit, unfortunately, where they mix up the, sometimes the names can't be clear. They're not sure if it's the man or the woman. The, what the spouse hands the H-1 petition. It's an H-4 visa in the passport. It's miscommunicated. They end up issuing the H-1 for the H-4. The second type of thing that can happen is they can mess up the validity period. So if a person is supposed to have a petition that has a validity period for two years, they may look at the date that the old visa expired and put that as the date of the validity period rather than the date of the petition, which would be the full extension of time. The third way that I've seen this happen is usually with notations. A lot of times CBP officers will put a notation on the I-94, um, valid for admission, won't, won't allow the person, but not for AOS, not for adjustment of status, or not for something at all, or something else. They've looked and they've made a determination that was based on some incorrect information. What I would tell you if any of these things happen, the first thing I would tell you is be prepared to miss your connecting flight. Be prepared to wait there for whatever period of time until you can get an officer available to check it and correct it. Because once you leave, it's fixable, but the level of complication that you have to go through to get it fixed is greatly, greatly increased. I would tell you... Some people are lucky to get it fast, but in general, it could tend, end up being, you know, it's, it's expensive and time-consuming and just another headache. No, absolutely true. But, you know, Sheila, the people that get it fast, I unfortunately can't represent everybody. So, <laughs> you know, we have to be careful. So the first thing we want to do is we want to look at our documents and compare them to our petition and our validity period. Our name is spelled right. Our status was entered correctly. No additional notations or scribbles by the officer are on the I-94. If they are there, you will not be able to go back to the line and get it cleared because they have 200, 300 people that are coming in. They are not going to entertain anything if you try to go back. What you need to do is... So you're saying as they're doing it to check it right there and then and say, oh, just please note I'm on, I'm on H-4 status or please note my expiration date is 2012 and not 2010? Correct. But remember, the, the line officer that's inspecting the documents only has about a minute to two minutes to review, to make a determination, and to move forward. So if you start dragging it out and there's 30 people behind you, he's going to refer you to deferred or what they call soft secondary in which they're going to say, when we clear our line, which is our primary responsibility, we'll then take a look at you and determine if you're correct and if we can make that correction. It is absolutely worth waiting around. It is worth getting it fixed correctly uh, at the port of entry, if at all possible. Sometimes you'll find, Sheila mentioned about an expired passport. Sometimes you'll find 
that when you go to get something fixed, you say, oh, I think this is an error by CBP. My petition says I'm good for three years, but they only gave me to the date of the visa. The date of the visa was only for a year. But then when you go to soft secondary, they open it up and they show you your passport also expires in a year. And therefore, we can't give you anything beyond for Indian nationals. It's actually up to the date of the passport. And for many other countries, for some countries, it's six months prior to the date of the passport. So therefore, the officer in the line actually did it correctly and that there's nothing they can do. But you will not. But if you're not sure, when in doubt, get it clarified, get it fixed at the port of entry. That's absolutely the best place to do it and the best place to get it taken care of. Okay, okay. And, and again, as, as we sort of briefly alluded to, um, you know, if, if for some reason it's missed, there, there is an opportunity to go back to contact any local CBP office anywhere in the United States. So if you flew into, for example, LAX, Los Angeles, or JFK, New York, you don't have to go back to the same airport. You could go to any other local airport. If you're now, say, based in the Midwest or somewhere else in Chicago or somewhere or some other city, you can go to that particular local office. Sometimes I find that particular office where you enter can actually be more helpful because they realize they made a mistake. Uh, but usually they're pretty good, and there is some information on CBP website that they can do that. They can take care of it um, through various discussions that the American Immigration Lawyers Association has had with the CBP officials. We have negotiated where it can be done in many other places, and now uh, the website of CBP actually has a very detailed outline of where people can go to take care of this problem and to remedy this error. Aaron, you look like you're dying to say something to me. Well, I was just going to say, as you were talking, I was thinking, and I was saying to myself, probably the best place to remedy any situation is prior to even going on the flight to look at your documents. Check the expiration date of your passport. Make sure that it extends beyond the date of your petition. Look at your visa. Make sure that the visa is not annotated with a previous petition expiration date on it, which is referred to as P period, E period, D period, and then it'll have a date. Because if you check and your visa is good, your passport extends, your petition gives you the full time, and everything looks good, you should be okay at the port of entry to get it fixed, and even if they make an error, it's correctable. One key point is that if your visa is notated, if it says the capital P, the capital E, the capital D, and there's a date, If you present the visa and you do not present the new petition with the new validity period, the officer is not required to ask you for the new petition. The officer can look at the visa, look at the notation, and simply issue the I-94 as it's indicated on that visa, the PED date, the, the petition expiration date. And if they do that, that's not called an error. So if you're using an old visa with a new approval and you're coming into the United States, check that visa, and if there's a PED date, make absolutely certain that you also present your petition approval upon entry into the United States to avoid confusion. Okay. So, Aaron, then, um, so if there is a mistake on the I-94, and you may have sort of kind of answered this already, uh, and you were given validity up until the expiration date on the visa validity and not until the expiration of the petition, under which the person is authorized to work for the employer, uh, what are the remedies? Well, if you've already, we've already discussed if you stayed in the airport. We've already discussed that you've missed your flight. We've already discussed what happens if you thought it was an error and it's not an error. But let's say you're like everybody else that's so smart that we calendar our dates when we have to get it renewed. 
Six months, eight months go by. We then see it's time for us to extend our status or renew. We open it up, and lo and behold, we discover the error too late. If that's something that happens, the, um, the, uh, the, the adjudicator's field manual for CBP specifically says that you can go to any port of entry, um, any deferred inspection office or port of entry, and you can request that they fix it at that location. So what I generally recommend people to do is to call first to find out what their hours are. I recommend to find out when the international flights are landing and coincide it with the hours so that you know that you're not coming when all the officers are busy taking care of the new people that are coming in. Find what we call a lull period. Then you can go in and quietly and patiently explain to them what happened why there was a delay in your finding the error, and ask them to correct the error. I find this very highly effective. Okay. Um, okay, so, and, and I think the point also that seems to have been made and may not have been made as uh, clearly is sometimes what happens if it's you or an employee that comes in but shows, um, you know, just says, hey, I have an H-1B visa stamp in my passport and doesn't show the petition or the latest petition approval, um, because they're coming in because the other petition is still valid, then the I-94 card w that will be given might be for a much shorter period, which could create complications down the road because if the I latest I-94 card date has expired, the person has a potential problem to be able to continue working for you or your business. Erin, um, I know uh, we, we want to talk the, about discuss this other issue, which is despite the fact that the visa validity and petition validity are for the three-year period into the future, the CBP bought, uh, you know, officer has now issued the I-94 that expires on the same day as the passport expiration date, uh, which is well before the expiration of both the visa and the petition. Uh, you mentioned it briefly, but how can this issue be specifically corrected? Is this an error? This is not an error. The, visa the CBP officer can only admit you for the duration of the, for the validity period of the petition but only as long as the passport is not expired. So if your passport expires in, for example, May or June of 2010, and your petition, let's use an H-1 as an example, says that it's good until May or June of 2011, you're only going to get May of 2010. And that's the point is that even if you get, the point is that if that happens, that's not an error, that's CBP acting correctly. And it is your responsibility to look at your passport. And number one, if you see it before you get on the plane, make sure that you get your passport extended or renewed. Number two, if you didn't find out until after you were admitted to check your documents at the time of admission or shortly thereafter, and if you see it's a shorted I-94, that it doesn't give you the full duration of the petition, and you see that it's going up to the date that the passport expires, the, the, the best thing to do at that point in time, in my opinion, is simply to file an extension of your status in the United States and at the same time to go ahead and to get your passport either renewed or extended so that it doesn't happen in the future. Okay. Um, okay, assuming now that we've tried everything, the person was told, but for whatever reason the person didn't know it, somebody comes in new, goofs up, doesn't has, has forgotten either the... Uh, petition approval, thought they had put it in their documents, but then realized when they reached the airport that, oops, it's left in my checked-in baggage, not with me. 
what can this person do? Is there any way the person can be allowed back into the United States? Will they be packed back on the next flight? Will they be deported? What happens, Korzad? Well, I mean, uh, Sheila, you're, you're alluding to something very, very basic, which is that typically a non-citizen must present appropriate documentation when coming to a border, border port of entry or, 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 or land port of entry or sea port of entry, uh, whatever. Otherwise, the CBP officer can and will deny them admission to the United States. But, you know, just like everything else in law, I mean, there are exceptions. And the U.S. CBP does have the power in its favorable discretion to, to exercise what's known as the blanket document waiver. Uh, and that's, uh, that, that's a um, statutory um, discretionary uh, tool that the U.S. CBP officer has. Uh, bottom line, if an individual presents themselves to a border inspection point uh, without appropriate documentation, but there is some unforeseen emergency, some kind of dire circumstance that they can show to the uh, border protection officer that, uh, that would prompt them to exercise their favorable discretion, the U.S. CBP officer could still admit them into the United States and issue them an I-94. Obviously, there's a form and a fee that needs to be uh, filled out and presented to the U.S. CBP officer. Uh, Aaron, you know what the amount of that fee is, correct? You know, the thing is like this. I believe the fee is $500. I think it's 500 or $530. The officer has a lot of discretion when they do that. And they can waive the fees they in many, many cases. They can absolutely waive the fees. But I'm telling you right now, when, when Corzat is saying dire circumstances, it, it's dire circumstances. Just saying, oops, I forgot, or I didn't realize my passport expired, or I left my petition in my, in my suitcase is not necessarily something where you're going to get a very happy officer that says, poor baby, let me help you. It's going to have to be something that clearly shows, I think they use the word emergent or something that's clearly so high in in nature that the officer says I'm It has to be an unforeseen emergency I believe under 212D4 Correct. And, and really the issue I think is it comes back to what I've said before you know ladies and gentlemen and that is your attitude when you come in, you, your employee whoever can be so important in something like this it's time and time again because we do hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of consultations that I've done um, in my work each day, which, uh, you know, obviously we, we get excited and we love helping people and we love finding solutions for people at this law firm. Part of the reason we all get excited to come to work every morning is to know that we can help people, we can help businesses become more profitable, we can help America, we can help people live their American dream in this great country, is the fact that at the end of the day, with all the best laws, with the best of intentions, if people have the right attitude, the right humility, you bow down, you're nice, you're polite. Even if you've ended up making a human error, but you look at the officer and say, I'm so, 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 so sorry. Is there anything, officer, that you can do to help me out? Yes, people will try to exercise that discretion. On the other hand, even if you have almost all of your documents, but there's a certain arrogant attitude, the person is dying to, to use some section of the law to kind of, you know, nip a person or be nasty to a person. So uh, we've, always, we've always said this, that you can accomplish so much more by being nicer and humble and more polite. And I don't think I need to say that to most of you, but sometimes we all know the theory, but when we're tired and exhausted and haven't slept well for 24 hours on that long 
flight halfway across the world, it is tempting to be a little nippy and a little exhausted and a little uh, snippy, and that can affect you. Two other very, very quick points that I want to touch upon um, before we try to wrap up, because we are very conscious of the time in the middle of the day, and we try to stick between 30 and 45 minutes, um, because these are incredible, wonderful opportunities for you to learn, to help your companies, your businesses, and your employees and obviously to work with the best law firm in the world on U.S. immigration law, is one issue is the successor and interest. The successor and interest issues where if your company is bought or sold or merged or spun off, uh, sometimes the earlier H-1B petition approval may still be valid, to, that you can still use uh, even after the merger, even after the successor and interest, uh, and continue to use it, but your candidate has to be ready to answer a bunch of questions by the CBP or keep documents of the newspaper cuttings, et cetera, in case they're asked about, hey, how come you're telling me you're working for ABC company, but your H-1B petition is approved for XYZ company? Um, because the visa and the petition name may be different than your employer letter. The second issue that I thought I would mention is the issue, and by the way, the law does allow it. There's the Visa Waiver Permanent Act. Uh, of 2000 and of 2000 actually, October 2000 was passed right around the time of the AC21 law, um, which addresses this issue, but it has to be substantially same or identical job and job duties with the same successor entity. Second issue is if you're a green card holder as a business owner or some of your key employees and they travel abroad extensively, this could pose problems for the person to come back into the United States. What does this mean? That means that if you say that I'm going to have run my other business or take care of my parents or my family back in India or back in some other country for more than 180 days, you could actually be denied entry into the United States by the CBP based on having abandoned your intention to live permanently as a permanent resident of the United States. So again, big, big, big red flag should go off. This is something you need to keep in mind whether you or your employees travel abroad on extensive, pieces of, um, extensive periods of time, even as a green card holder, because a lot of people assume the day I get my green card, obviously I can do what I want, and they wait to get their green card to then go back to work in India or work somewhere else, which isn't a very good idea. Sometimes it's actually better to be on H1 or L1 in order to travel extensively. Uh, all of these issues that we discussed today by CBP with Aaron, Korzad, and myself, are critically important issues because they can literally make the difference between life and death, a person being able to enter or not enter the United States. As I explained in the beginning, the CBP officials uh, job is a very delicate balancing act of welcoming you to the country and also preventing terrorism and checking documents, being both the security guard and the welcoming agent, very tough call. It is important to understand the basic laws, regulations, statutes, memoranda, policy, guidance, and exceptions that apply. We like to point those out to benefit you. All of the issues that Aaron Korzad and myself discussed today are just the tip of the iceberg because there are a gazillion other more complex and detailed issues that come in. We've just gone over a brief outline of the issues. Sometimes I tell people, just be mentally prepared. Be mentally prepared in your head when you're going in or getting off a flight what, before you board the aircraft, what it is I need, what it is I should carry, how should I keep it, have a checklist of documents, and go with an attitude to be mentally prepared and to have the documents with you, 
easily available and don't forget to carry with you a great attitude when you get off that airplane. It will also help you, by the way, to have that great attitude when you're on that airplane with your spouse and your children or your neighbors uh, in, on the flight because a good attitude will always help you, but it's really, really important with the CBP official. Uh, again, we, we enjoy discussing very complex issues, many unique issues, and we certainly look forward to continuing to help you, your business, your companies, uh, with respect to your petition filings, and should there be any problems in dealing with the CBP or negotiating for you to correct those I-94 cards and to guide you in this process. Thank you once again for joining us. We appreciate your time, and we look forward to continuing to take excellent care of you with our wonderful team at the Murthy Law Firm. On behalf of Korzad Aaron and myself, thank you so much. Bye-bye.